When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. Hang Up and Listen is brought to you by Harry's, the new shaving company that offers German-engineered blades, well-designed handles, and shipping right to your door, all at a fraction of the price of other razors. Visit harrys.com and use the promo code HANGUP. And by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional website, portfolio, and online store. For a free trial and 10% off, visit squarespace.com and enter offer code HANGUP at checkout. A better web starts with your website. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of April 28th, 2014. On this week's show, we'll discuss the audio recording that allegedly features L.A. Clippers owner Donald Sterling spouting vile racist blather and what the NBA and the Clippers players should do about the owner's bigotry. We'll also assess the 10-game suspension that Major League Baseball handed down to Yankees pitcher Michael Pineda for slathering pine tar on his neck. Finally, we'll be joined by Deadspin's Tim Marchman to talk about the latest victory for UFC light heavyweight champ John Jones and whether he's an athlete we should all get behind. I'm joined in Washington, D.C. by Stefan Fatsis author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic, and the Friday sports correspondent for NPR's All Things Considered, fresh off a successful school scrabble championship, looking like no tile bags under his eyes. Fresh is a word longer than Daisy, higher scoring word. Fresh is a chrysanthemum. How are you, Stefan? 
I'm riding high, Josh, proud of all of my Washington, D.C.-based school scrabblers, but especially the daughter, the sixth grade daughter, finished third in the NSSC National School Scrabble Championship out of 69 teams, took home, she and her partner, Caleb, Chloe and Caleb, took home $2,000 for their efforts, and they just fell short, or they fell just short I'm playing in the uh, championship final for the $10,000 first prize. I appreciate you advertising how much money Chloe and Caleb won. A Just lot of money. For that, for, to rub it in to for all the IRS, In case IRS agents are out there listening. Oh, we had, we had to fill out 1099s. Don't worry. Okay. Good. Hey, uh, Mike Pesca, you're in New York. Your show, uh, The Gist, is starting next week. That's exciting. Yes, that's true. I now have a list of... That rhymes with gist. I now have a list of people who made less than Chloe did playing Scrabble at the Masters. Are you ready? <laughs> Go for it. Go. Chloe out-earned Luke Donald. Chloe out-earned Ernie Els. Chloe out-earned Zach Johnson. Chloe out-earned Dustin Johnson. Chloe out-earned Angel Cabrera. And Chloe out-earned Phil Mickelson. She also out-earned Tiger Woods. And you know who else she out-earned? Me, in the history of my Scrabble career. Really? Well, you have true amateur status, so that's good. You've maintained <laughs> I was, that. I was going to ask, is she now ineligible for her NCAA Scrabble career? She would be, yeah. Yeah. I'm taking, I am, I'm calling Mark Emmert, though, in protest. Or have you had amateur status thrust upon you, is the question. I have a question for you, Mike Pesco. On the way back from the National School Scrabble Championship, paying for my parking at BWI Airport, I was voice identified. Uh-huh. Are you Stefan Fatsis? I was like, by who? By some random dude, Michael Yu of Washington, D.C., hang-up listener. I told him I was scurrying home to prepare for what, the podcast. What's the question? That's it. How often does Mike Pesca get voice identified? That's the question. Oh, I'm sure Mike gets voice identified all the time. For us, it's a more of a rare treat. Yeah. It happens once in a while, but it, it, it rarely happens in places that you don't think it's going to happen. Like, um, like, like the parking lot at BWI? For instance, UFC fights. Doesn't what, happen that much. What about at the NPR cruise? Does it happen there? <laughs> <laughs> right. One time, one time Mar Elias and ID'd me. It was quite, <laughs> quite something special. I was, I was voice ID'd by a Washington cab driver once. That was, my, that was my best voice ID. Was that ID preceded by, hey, turn on NPR. Let's see who's on there. <laughs> <laughs> That's hey. my wife. Yeah. A couple mentions here. A reminder that... We have just launched Slate Plus, which is the membership program for Slate's most devoted readers and listeners, including a bunch of you, no doubt. Um, everything on Slate will remain free, but Plus members will get perks and bonus features, including extra segments, bonus segments on this very podcast you could be listening to if you uh, sign up for Slate Plus. It's $5 per month or $50 per year, and you can sign up at uh, slate.com slash hangup. Plus, if you do that, then the Slate Poobahs will know that our fans are very devoted to us. This is a, that, that'll be important. That'll be nice for us. Get more uh, uh, devotees than the Culture Fest or the Political Gap Fest. We're very competitive here, Stefan. Taking down Emily Bazelon. Sick of Bazelon and her Bazeloning. <laughs> I also want to always voice ID'd that one. I also uh, want to note mom and dad are fighting. It's a great podcast featuring uh, my colleagues Allison Benedict and Dan Coyce. I just wanted to give a shout out to them. People should listen to that if you like uh, our show. Then there's a possibility, a high possibility that you'll like their show. It's about parenting. Stefan, you would like it. 
You Pandora, have... Pandora finds that those, or Amazon finds, those who bought this also bought that. Definitely true. All right, before the tip-off of their playoff game against the Golden State Warriors in Oakland on Sunday, the LA Clippers piled up their shooting shirts at half court, revealing that they're wearing their warm-up jerseys inside out to hide the team's logo. During the game, they wore black wristbands, armbands, and socks and protest of statements allegedly made by the team's owner, Donald Sterling. In an audio tape released by TMZ and Deadspin, a man who seems to be Sterling says some horribly racist things in conversation with his girlfriend, telling her that she should not bring black people to Clippers games. She should not put photos of black people, including Magic Johnson and Matt Kemp, on her Instagram account. So even famous black people, you can't put them on your Instagram account, according to Donald Sterling. Uh, Let's listen to a clip here. One in which Sterling expresses his feelings about the Clippers players. Because I don't understand. I don't see your views. I I wasn't raised the way you were raised. Well, then if, if you don't feel, don't come to my games. Don't bring black people and don't come. Do you know that you have a whole team that's black that plays for you? you just do I know? I support them and give them food and clothes. And cars and houses. Who gives it to them? Does someone else give it to them? Do I know that I have? Who makes the game? Do I make the game or do they make the game? And these are 30 owners that create the league. Sterling has been condemned by everyone in this and other galaxies, including the Clippers players, LeBron James, who said there's no room for him in the NBA. Bobcats owner Michael Jordan and President Obama, who answered a question about Sterling at a press conference in Malaysia. The NBA Players Association, fronted in this matter by former player and Sacramento Mayor Kevin Johnson, is pushing for the maximum possible penalty, though it seems like it could be difficult for the NBA to force Sterling to sell the team. NBA Commissioner Adam Silver says the league will act swiftly, but is still determining the authenticity of the recording. For our part, I think we can feel pretty comfortable dropping the allegedly's at this point, given that it sounds like Sterling and that on account of his well-known history of racism, it sounds exactly like the kind of stuff he would say. I would now like to get over to our chief racism correspondent, Mike Pesca. Are you disappointed that I didn't identify you, Stefan? Um, I am. Mike Pesca, you're free to take this conversation whichever way you please. Okay, I don't think that laundry-related protests are going to get there. There being where the NBA wants to be with regards to Donald Sterling, they want him out, and that's not going to happen. So I have a couple perhaps complex or contradictory, though they're really not thoughts on the matter. Do I think Donald Sterling should be stripped of his ownership? Do I think that's even possible? I don't. You know, in America, you could be a guy with loathsome ideas and a stupid person who puts those loathsome ideas or, you know, doesn't keep those loathsome ideas to himself. You could be really terrible and horrible and still own private property without it getting taken from you. However, Adam Silver is an opportunity to publicly shame this guy, and that's what he should do. He should use the power of his pulpit to, yeah, launch investigations and have a blue-ribbon panel, but also flat-out say, Donald Sterling is a pariah. I'm going to be looking to do everything in my power that I could do to make life uncomfortable for this guy. I don't know if it's going to be possible, but maybe we're not going to put the Clippers on national TV. Maybe we're going to go as uh, so far as to, you know, document all his history of racism, pressure him, put it out there that maybe if you're a free agent, you don't want to go to the Clippers. Now, I would also say about this, that I think the uh, protests of the Clippers and then, well, not even the sympathetic protests of other teams like the Rockets and 
trailblazers who wore, wore black socks too. But I think the Clippers' protest was inadequate. They don't have to do anything, but what they did, even though you know some people said it's your job to play basketball, well, yeah, sure. It's if everyone ever did their job, we'd never get anywhere in terms of social progress. So Chris Paul and Blake Griffin and other lesser-known Clippers had the opportunity to do something big, and. It's understandable, and they're in a tough position, but I don't think they took the bold step that they really needed to take. And what would have been the harm if they forced uh, the NBA's hand by not jumping for the jump ball and letting the other team score, letting the Golden State score, or just not coming out onto the court? I mean, really taking a stand, and maybe even a stand that got their fans mad. But I think that's, if, if you were really upset about what he said, as you should be, I say you do something stronger. It's sort of easy for me to say, because it's me saying it, not doing anything, but I've thought a lot about this, and you you could either go down as the kind of person who did something really courageous and bold and controversial, or you could go down as the kind of person who threw his jersey in the middle of the center court. I have a lot of thoughts on this, too. I think it is very hard on the players to say that they should have done something more. I sort of feel like it's the same as in Sochi, where it would have been great for athletes to speak out against Russia, against the anti-gay laws. But you can understand on an individual level why someone wouldn't. Um, We ask a lot of athletes and, you know, they haven't had that much time to process this, Mike. There's some talk that they could do more, make a stronger statement before their home game in game five. And I think... From their perspective, you know, Adam Silver is saying that he's moving very quickly here. If their interest is to get Donald Sterling out of the league, whether that's possible or not, but if that's their interest, I think that there's a large segment of the public that would be less sympathetic to their cause if they did do some sort of stronger act, stronger protest. And given that this seems like, uh, you know, Silver is going to come out with a partial resolution of this in a couple of days. It makes sense to me to wait and see what he does, perhaps do something stronger in the aftermath of that, or just even after you think about what you want to do for a little bit longer. It's not like the opportunity to protest has passed forever. I agree with you that they didn't have a lot of time to process this and coming up with a solution that required talking to a lot of people and examining the ramifications of their actions was a difficult thing to do. On the other hand, I don't think the Sochi parallel is apt. And the simple reason that it's not apt is that we talk about individual athletes in Sochi. These aren't individual athletes in the National Basketball Association or any other professional sports league. They are represented by a union, a union that has terrific leverage with ownership and management of the league. And in this case, the union president is a black player who plays for this team. The advisor to the union search for a new executive director is the black mayor and former NBA player, uh, black mayor of Sacramento, Kevin Johnson. And Chris Paul is the player who's the president of the union. There's a lot of collective muscle in the billions of dollars of in contracts that are paid out by the owners. Owners who, by the way, are sympathetic to the players in this instance. It's not as if the owners in this league are supportive of Donald Sterling. They want to see him out too. But there has been a collective unwillingness over the years to take serious action against him. And that falls on the the ownership, the governing board, and the commissioner of the NBA. And now it's going to come down on Adam Silver because this is his first test of leadership and persuasive abilities, not just his ability to persuade the other owners to take action against Sterling, whether it's a suspension or 
it's a multi-million dollar fine that's forced to be given to charity, but the collective persuasive efforts to get him to agree to sell. And Mike, I agree that, yeah, people can own whatever they want to own in this country, but owning an NBA team isn't a right. This is a collective. This is a cartel. The collective force of the other owners is incredibly powerful and can be used to take action, even action as strong as forcing a partner out of this business. That's true, but it is a right not to be stripped of your property. So once you own the team, I think that that would be a violation of you know, what I consider ethical behavior and probably letter of the law, what the NBA could do. I don't give the players an F. I understand all of that. But there did seem to be this notion, hey, look, the most important thing is that we play. The most important thing is that we play hard for our fans. And I wanted them to play hard for the fans. By the way, they didn't play hard for the fans. They got blown out. <laughs> but I wanted them to play hard. I wanted all that to happen. But I wanted an on-court, game-oriented, I'm not saying actually forfeit the game, but I wanted a more forceful action. Absolutely. The inside-out j- jersey, just the optics of it were lame. And yeah, you're, you know, Josh, when you're talking about giving up and doing something that might change public opinion or be unpopular, you know, everyone now that we celebrate for being civil rights pioneers did that exactly, right? There were no popular civil rights pioneers. Sure. I, I agree with that. I'm just saying that it's not like they've given up their opportunity to ever that's right. Do anything again. No, and they may yeah. have strengthened their hand because if they can bring in LeBron James, who w- did issue a very strong statement, if they can bring in other teams and do a collective playoff action, that will speak a lot louder than the Clippers players alone, either not taking the court or not coming out of the locker room for 15 minutes or walking away after the, the first jump ball. And I think maybe that's what's happening behind the scenes. I mean, Yahoo Sports did report that they are planning some sort of broader, stronger statement before game five, which will be in Los Angeles. So who knows? We just don't know what is happening behind the scenes. But I think that all of us do hope that there is some sort of stronger collective statement that reflects the power of the players in this situation and right. reflects the the true horrific racial component to what's going on here, that this is a league that's 75% black and where ownership is 90 plus percent white. I mean, there are two owners of color in this league, the new owners of the Sacramento Kings, one of the new owners of the Sacramento Kings and Michael Jordan. And both of them did come out strongly and forcefully against Donald Sterling over the weekend. The most annoying thing to me about this whole story is that Donald Sterling is who we thought he was. Donald Sterling is who we thought he was. He is a guy who was fined millions of dollars for not renting apartments to black people because they attract vermin. And he wouldn't rent to Hispanics and he wouldn't rent to large families. And he has a history of racism, not a racist statement, but racist actions that actually hurt people, regular people. When he insults Magic Johnson, then it all comes to a head. When he's fined millions of dollars for not renting apartments to people who need them, Doc Rivers can say, I didn't even know about that before I took the Clippers job. That was reported today that Clippers coach Doc Rivers, who I respect and think is a plugged-in guy, said he didn't know about that. And and I've never heard any free agent saying, well, why would I go want to play for Donald Sterling? And as much as Donald Sterling was loathed for basketball reasons, His past is never brought up. This whole incident is, to me, this huge problem because someone said something on tape and it was probably illegally taped. And once you're confronted,
confronted with an audio tape, then you got to do something. But what about Houston Astros owner Jim Crane, who was fined, I think, $9 million for essentially saying, don't hire black people because it's hard to fire black people. And one of the reasons I don't hire black people is because all of my managers are racist and it would be terrible. This guy has the same documented history of racism. What's being said about him? I guess we'll have to wait until he says something on tape for anyone to give a damn about that guy. All very good points. And I wanted to talk about why we think that Sterling has been allowed to operate in this way for 30 years. I mean, David Stern certainly deserves a large measure of blame here. But, you know, Mark Jackson in the 2009 Peter Keating ESPN article that documented a lot of this, and you said, Mike, that this isn't talked about. I I mean, it has been written about extensively. It's just not talked about on a day-to-day level. Well, not talked about enough for Doc Rivers to know it. Right, but in that... Doc Rivers needs a new agent and a new lawyer then. In that article, uh, Mark Jackson, who now as the coach of the Warriors, says this is unacceptable. We have to get this out of our league, as everyone else has said. In that Peter Keating article, he says he never had a problem with Sterling. He says, I heard about the housing case. What can I do about that? That's his business and it's in the courts. A lot of players, owners, people at ESPN have been charged or sued over something. There was a league-wide lack of curiosity or interest in Sterling. And when he was discussed, it was more as an object of derision. He was a laughingstock. He's an old man. People thought he was creepy. He, you know, There's a lot of sexual allegations that have made against them. And I think he he heckled his own players. Yeah, right. I think a lot of this has to do with the fact that the Clippers always lost. And I think in some sense, maybe you guys disagree that there was a sense that that was enough karmic punishment for him. And that maybe if the team was, you know, the Lakers or the Celtics or the Bulls that won all these championships, that would have brought more attention to Sterling's awfulness and would have seemed like he was profiting more, you know, from his racism and wasn't being punished for it. But in fact, the team's franchise value has been increasing like crazy. And he's in this club, this, you know, NBA owners club. And the fact that he's been allowed to operate in this way, that's the cachet that he has. That's, you know, what he needs to be considered, you know, some sort of top person in America. The NBA tolerated Donald Sterling. He was he was the crazy uncle owner. Every sports has a wacky franchise with an owner who disgraces the sport. Marge Schott did that for years in Major League Baseball until baseball forced her out, suspended her and then forced her out as an owner of the Cincinnati Reds in 1983. Sterling used the N-word to describe the players while he was interviewing Raleigh Massimino for a head coaching vacancy with the Clippers. This is a guy that was sued by former general manager Elgin Baylor, who in that lawsuit mentioned various forms of racial discrimination and and odious racial behavior. Baylor did not win that lawsuit. Did not win that lawsuit. And Sterling was also vilified, let's not forget, for doing what in ownership was probably one of the most disgraceful things. He pocketed the NBA's broadcast money, spent nothing on the team, made millions of dollars, played in a dump, and put a terrible product on the court. That was the substance of the criticism of Donald Sterling for years and years, which frankly should have been cause for the NBA to try to push him out sooner. We don't know how hard David Stern and the Board of Governors tried to persuade Donald Sterling to sell the team. They certainly didn't fine him or publicly reprimand him for anything. They did not. And they were clearly not very effective if they were trying to get him out of the league. There are ways to isolate and humiliate and force partners out of a business. The NBA didn't do that with this guy. 
You know, and I, I go back to the Astros case, and uh, there's maybe there's some other people with this kind of past, but I think that there's we should go on a hypocrisy watch and to see the people who are so unbelievably upset about what Donald Sterling said because we have an audio recording of it, and to see how far they take it with uh, their argument and with uh, maybe asking a tough question to Bud Selig or, I mean, the Major League Baseball was so thrilled to get the Astros sold, Drayton McClain, who, by the way, once upon a time, may have said some insensitive things about Hispanics, but was never fined millions of dollars for business practices. Anyway, they were so excited to get them sold that they did sell to Crane. And, you know, Major League Baseball just flat out says to some people, you're not up to our metal, right? That was the message they gave to uh, Mark Cuban. And so we'll see how far this goes. I really think this is one of those things where you have a videotape or you have an audio tape and you have to go crazy in the moment. And then, of course, nothing will change. Well, Stefan already poked holes in my Sochi analogy correctly. But one thing that it reminded me of was R. Kelly, who I've written about in the past, who's somebody who we know committed these vile acts and has often paid for the silence of his victims. You know, it's different sort of allegations, you know, sexual, having sexual relationships with children. But people just forget about it. And then we'll just remember at seemingly random times. There was a lot of talk about R. Kelly's behavior this year for whatever reason. And then people just forget. We have a limited capacity to be outraged about things. I mean, Woody Allen is, you know, again, different and those facts are under dispute. But people were so angry about Woody Allen and now nobody's talking about it. And it seems like that's what happened to Sterling. Like nobody would really argue that he was a good person or that he didn't do these things. It was just forgotten about and not really discussed. And that, I think, falls on David Stern and it falls on the NBA, because these things are going to fall out of public consciousness unless the league really pushes it or unless there's an audio tape. You're right about that, Mike. All right. Time for a word from our sponsor, which is Squarespace.com, the simple and easy way to build a beautiful website. I was just looking at Squarespace for examples of all the different sites that people have built with it. And I found one called Thurman-Thomas.Squarespace.com, which is not what you think, Stefan. It's actually the website for a band out of Baton Rouge, and it looks awesome. It's really clean and professional with a responsive design. So whether you're a Buffalo Bills legend or not, you can start a trial with Squarespace. With no credit card required, start building your website today uh, that comes with 24-7 support and with an online store where you can sell your uh, Buffalo Bills jerseys or your CDs, uh, depending on which kind of Thurman Thomas you are. It all starts at just $8.00 per month. And when you sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code HANGUP to get 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for the Hang Up and Listen podcast experience. We thank Squarespace for supporting Hang Up and Listen. Squarespace, a better web, starts with your website. It seems like every 20 years or so, there's a Thurman, who's a legendary Thurman. Munson, Thurman Thomas. We're about due, 70s, 90s. It's time for a new Thurman to rise in professional sports. Can we add that to your uh, watch? Can we do a Thurman watch, Mike? Yeah, every week. I'll update you. No Thurman has yet arisen. (laughs) (laughs) On April 10th, Yankees starting pitcher Michael Pineda pitched six strong innings against the Red Sox to pick up his first win of the season. In that game, he was also caught with what appeared to be pine tar on his right hand, though Pineda claimed it was dirt, and Yankees manager Joe Girardi pled ignorance about the substance. Two weeks later, the quote-unquote dirt migrated upwards in the second inning of another game against the Red Sox. Boston's manager, John Farrell, came out to complain that Pineda had goop slathered all over his neck. Pineda was immediately ejected, 
and has now been suspended for 10 games for possessing a foreign substance on his person. In the aftermath of the ejection and suspension, a lot of players and managers have noted that pretty much everyone uses a sticky substance to get a better grip on the ball. And though it's against the rules, everyone just looks the other way. As the Red Sox manager Farrell said, I fully respect that on a cold night you're trying to get a grip, but when it's that obvious, something has got to be said. Ah, baseball with its unwritten rules. Stefan Joe Girardi, the manager of your New York Yankees, said he was embarrassed by the whole episode. And that seems like what this is really all about. It's that a guy was caught with his hand in the pine tar jar, and now everybody is pretending to be outraged by it from, you know, the Yankees to the Red Sox to the commissioner's office. Why be embarrassed? Embrace the pine tarness. The only thing missing here is a collective statement by Major League Baseball pitchers that, yes, we do this every time we touch a baseball. We are breaking the written rules every time we go on the mound. Part of our preparation involves preparing to cheat. Every start I have, every relief appearance I make, I spend time in the clubhouse before the game (laughs) opening a jar or squeezing some shit out of a tube that will help me break the rules. Instead, we have this collective embarrassment, as you put it, Josh, because they got caught. They got caught doing something that is so commonplace and has an obvious explanation or at least the obvious explanation being that it is required. And then you take it one step further. It's required not so that I can pitch better. It's required so I don't lose control of the ball and hurt someone. And who would argue with not wanting to bean a hitter on the other team? I'm so confused about how this informed counter-narrative to Pine Tarish cheating spring up this time. I mean, remember in playoffs past, and it's like, ah, we figured out the deal with Kenny Rogers. There was a tiny little patch on his bill of his cap, and therefore he's a bad pitcher. And even when the Pineda thing was just a rumor for weeks, there was back and forth, and did it really happen? And I saw the start, so there was He had one start in between the best documentary photographic evidence and the one where he got suspended. And I was listening to the Yes Network and they were zooming in. They were saying, we don't see anything like that. We don't see anything like that. All right. You don't see any pine tar. And of course, the idea was that, of course, if there was pine tar, that would be cheating. So now the guy gets busted and all of a sudden... It's like, yeah, Pintar's not really cheating. How did this happen now? How does the, how come the, it always helps the Yankees? How did the Yankees get this benefit of the doubt? Actually, that's not always true. I think Yankees fans would say they always get uh, piled upon, but I just don't understand it. Baseball's a weird, weird sport. It's really stuck in the late 19th century. It's stuck because of all the Pintar. Yeah, yeah. So Dirk Hayhurst, uh, former pitcher, now broadcaster, uh, wrote a thing for Deadspin where he went through all of the different techniques that players use to either, you know, get a grip on the ball in the most benign sense or to cheat by putting gloop on the ball. Pine tar is one of them. There's rosin combined with sunscreen. There's something called firm grip. These are techniques that are passed along through, you know, pitchers via pitching coaches, via teammates. And it does seem like it's accepted in baseball. And you just have This problem when there's a rule in anything in life that outlaws something that everyone does where it can be abused for tactical gain. And that's, I think, a good point that Buster Olney raised. If everybody is looking the other way 
and everybody knows that somebody on the other team is doing it, then, you know, what's to stop John Farrell or Joe Girardi or whoever, you know, from going out to the mound saying this guy has pine tar on him, forcing the umpires to check and getting a guy suspended for 10 games. That's why the rules need to reflect what the practice is in baseball or the practice needs to change. Otherwise, you know, it's open to abuse. It's like if a cop looks the other way with regards to marijuana, you know, they're going to still stop somebody if you go up to the cop's face and like smoke a blunt and like drop it right on his shoe. Or why you can drive 72 miles per hour in a 65 mile per hour zone. But if you go 75 or 76, you're going to get pulled over. The rules or the law should reflect what the actual practices is what I'm saying. And only raises the point that like what baseball should do is say, you know, if there is broad agreement, which there seems to be that this is not cheating, then create some sort of legal substance that allows pitchers to get a better grip. Now, Hayhurst says, actually, you know, it's not just about getting a better grip. It allows you to have a tighter spin on your breaking ball. I believe the way he phrases it is, but you wouldn't believe what a professional player can do with that increased unnatural grip. Yeah, they can manipulate it to be better pitchers. So, right. The fear, though, that baseball has is that we'll go back to the 1910s or 20s or whenever the spitball era was when guys would have brown juice dribbling down the fronts of their jerseys that they would apply to the ball, that everyone would look like they just stepped out of a backyard swimming pool sized spittoon, that it's so obvious that it makes the game look stupid. So how do you regulate the aesthetic appearance of cheating? There's a big splotch of pine tar on someone's uniform shirt or neck or cap bill versus the practical reality that players need to use something to get a grip. Maybe the answer is pine tar isn't okay because you can see it, but firm grip is okay or sunscreen is okay because it's clear and it doesn't really show up unless you're looking really hard for something that looks like sweat stains on the shirt. Couple things. I only endorse a pine tar with an SPF below 30. In some states, you could get a doctor's prescription for pine tar at a pine tar dispensary. They now have the pine tar that comes in little strips that dissolves directly onto your tongue. A lot of pitchers are now using vaporized pine tar. So there's a lot of innovation going on with pine tar. Uh, For all this stuff about getting a grip, yeah, it does two things. It gets a grip, and I'm going to end my sentence there. Oh, you're in the gets a grip camp. It also affects the physics of the ball. It's right. also a splotch on the ball that makes, I mean, you want to call it a tighter curve. It, you know, causes a little bit of knuckle. It causes a lot more action. Obviously, it does that. Everyone knows it does that. Rosin bags are allowed because they're the substance of rosin is not as heavy, and it doesn't affect the flight of the ball. It just affects your grip. I think there should be a condiment bar on the mound. So instead of just having the rosin yeah. bag, yeah. have the pine tar, you know, the firm grip yeah. tube, have the Vaseline. The next huge debate in baseball is, look, I agree up until Russian dressing, but once you go Thousand <laughs> Island, I'm sorry. There does seem to be a hierarchy here. Hayhurst writes that, you know, lube is the one thing that's considered beyond the, the pale among pitchers and because it makes the ball do, you know, more ridiculous things than these other things. It's a spitball and spitballs are wrong. You don't just, you don't actually lick the ball. I was, I was really disappointed as a kid to, to learn, learn that you did not just lick the ball or right. spit I mean, on in the, the spitball area, people actually did spit on the ball though, or they spit on their hand and then, you know, spit directly into their hand visibly. Back in the dark ages of yeah. spitballdom. I do uh, wonder how this is going to play out now, whether there's going to be 
an arms race. It was interesting that Brian Cashman and Joe Girardi of the Yankees said, like, yeah, obviously John Farrell had to say something because it was so obvious. They didn't blame him or anything. But I just wonder if um, now that Pineda has been suspended, whether other managers are going to use this as a you know part of the toolkit, just they're trying to take advantage of the replay system. I don't think so, because I think that everyone in baseball sort of appreciates the lack of codification here. That is part of the game. And while we make fun of the unwritten rules and the ways that they are sort of randomly enforced, one of the, the things that's appealing about baseball is that it does have this sort of this legacy of traditions and weird on-field behavior that do descend from much, much earlier eras of the game. There is something sort of fun about that. It takes out some of the instant replay authoritative NFL-ness about codifying every level last damn thing in the sport where we can have these conversations about who's trying to game the system in these minor, minor ways that may or may not be affecting the outcome of games. And in most instances, when it comes to getting a grip on the ball, it's not affecting the outcomes of the games. It's part of baseball. Is that justifiable? I mean, yeah, maybe the line is simply, if you put a lot of this crap on your body and it's so obvious that everyone sees it, then it makes baseball look stupid. If you're doing it because it's what you do to pitch, then that's okay. All right, we've got a new sponsor this week, Harry's, which sells high-quality shaving products for half the price of the competition. Stefan is laughing because of my uh, sort of, how would you describe it, lax attitude towards shaving? No, I'm not describing because I'm describing because I'm imagining that this podcast will now be subscribed to by dozens of Major League Baseball pitchers who want to see if Harry's shaving products are good at doctoring a baseball. <laughs> Uh, maybe it is. Um, you know, I'm, I am wondering though if we got this advertiser because of my personal shaving strategy, which I describe as erratic at best. I do aspire to have facial hair like uh, a major league relief pitcher. Maybe if they had better uh, shaving cream, though, they wouldn't have any facial hair at all. I am very lazy when it comes to such things. I'm pleased to learn that Harry's caters to gentlemen such as myself. The supplies are shipped to your door. Fifteen dollars gets you a set that includes a handle three blades and shaving cream. I will note also that one of the company's co-founders launched the online glasses company Warby Parker. And there are a lot of similarities here, including emphasis on great design, meticulous craftsmanship, value, and a highly personal and dedicated customer service team. I was out of town this weekend, so I was unable to get my shaving kit, but I look forward to using it this week, having a much cleaner countenance the next time I see you, Stefan. Uh, I work on the neck too, Josh. I do need to work on the neck. not just the face, it's the neck. All right, go to harrys.com and use the promo code HANGUP to save $5 off your first purchase. Thank you to Harry's for the sponsorship. On Saturday night in Baltimore, John Bones Jones beat Glover Teixeira by unanimous decision to defend his UFC light heavyweight title for the seventh time. The 26-year-old Jones is the biggest name in mixed martial arts He's also considered one of the sport's greatest practitioners by people who know a lot more about this stuff than I do. One of those people is Deadspin's Tim Marchman, who's joining us by phone. Thanks for coming on the show, Tim. Of course. And I'd like to get to Jones's off-the-mat persona a bit later, uh, which is uh, really interesting. But first, let's start with his skills as a fighter. Uh, You wrote in the Wall Street Journal back in 2011 that if mixed martial arts is ever to become anything near a major sport, it will have to present a transcendent athlete. So let's not actually get bogged down in the semantics of whether MMA is now a major sport. But it does seem like Jones is that transcendent athlete. So can you walk us through what makes him 
so great and what he does that nobody else in the sport can? He does everything better than everybody else. And the best way to describe him might be as maybe uh, a Will Chamberlain figure in that the sport is maturing. So at the high end, you have these really amazing athletes, you know, who would, who would fit in any other sport. And at the low end, you know, you have guys who are barely professional athletes, and there's this huge gap between them that you wouldn't see in, in you know, a more developed sport. So he's just literally better than everybody else. He, he Physically, he has two brothers who are NFL linemen, and he has this really strange body with these long arms that give him a huge reach advantage and allow him to keep anybody from coming inside on him if he doesn't want them to. On top of that, he's a pretty amazing Greco-Roman wrestler. So if you, if you kind of tie up with him or clinch with him, he's going to dominate in that area. He's got a great submission game. All the, all the kind of basic elements of what you want out of a fighter, he's top rank at them. The only thing he's not great at is uh, straight boxing. He doesn't have a lot of knockout power in his hands. He makes that up for that with other areas. And in addition to that, he's really, really smart. He has, uh, you know, you call it a really high fight IQ. He's able to make these adjustments. Like in the fight against Teixeira, he said after the fight that his game plan had been to, to stay from the outside, use this big reach advantage he has, and just pick Teixeira apart at range. But he noticed that he was winding up a little bit on his punches. And that you can't do that with somebody on top of you. So he switched his whole game plan up on the fly and just kind of smothered him inside. And that sort of thing, you don't see a lot of fighters do that. They tend to be pretty robotic. They've had their, their game plan drilled into them over you know, maybe a three-month camp, and they, and they stick with it. They wouldn't even notice that they could do that, let alone how to do it. Is that because he's been able to try to master more of the disciplines than other fighters try to? I mean, this is a guy that was a, a, an accomplished college wrestler, correct? Mm-hmm. But he has developed these other skills in these other martial arts. Do other fighters tend to rely on their native skill more than the acquired ones? Not really. At this point, you're starting to see people who are maybe in their 20s, and they've kind of come up training across various disciplines. You're seeing less of the, you know, I was a college wrestler or I was a kickboxer and I got into this sport. They're training as, you know, they call it cross-training, mm-hmm. cross-training mixed martial artists. They know how to transition between the, the different skills and everything. So he's just better at it than other people. And, you know, the last thing is he, he's really creative. He has all these techniques, partially because of his build and partially because he's smart, that no one else can do. Like, there was a, a move, it's a wrestling move, an arm crank that he used, and he basically screwed up to share his shoulder. And you never see anybody using that. It's considered a dirty move in wrestling, but it's legal in MMA. He just pulls these techniques out that you don't see anybody else using. You know, it's, it's like full-spectrum dominance. He's, he's just straight-out better and better trained than everybody else. In a sport where even the best practitioners, oh, second use of practitioners, have losses on their records, he only has one, and that was by DQ, right? Yeah, and it was a really nitpicky thing. There's a, it's, it's actually kind of a stupid rule. It's about you can't bring an elbow down from the 12th position or the 6th position, and that's because at the time they were drawing up rules with athletic commissions. One of the commissioners had seen some karate guy on TV like breaking cinder blocks with his elbows. And was really concerned. It might have been in fists of fury. Like, we're not sure if it was an actual match. Right, right. Like, uh, you know, they were concerned about these Shaolin monks coming and, you know, like killing people with their devastating elbow techniques and, like, you know, using the praying mantis in an actual fight situation. So there are all these really bizarre rules. So he was destroying this guy who actually happened to be deaf. And there's some confusion over whether 
this guy was able to communicate with the referee because he was deaf and because he was getting bludgeoned so badly. So he may have been trying to quit well before Jones was disqualified. So it was a, it was a really fluky loss. So the reason I even bring that up, and that was an interesting backstory, is, okay, there seems to be very few competitors who could even give him a game. What about going up a division? Um, I look at his body type, right? So he's 6'3", but he's lean. He has two brothers who play in the NFL. Those guys are about 6'4", 6'5", Arthur Jones, Chandler Jones. Arthur Jones plays a little more inside on the Ravens. He's over 300 pounds. Chandler Jones is 270 pounds. You know, football players, depending on their position, put on a lot of weight. What this indicates to me is that Jones could put on weight. Would that be smart? Would, uh, you know, he wreck the super heavyweight division? What do they think about that? One of his trainers years ago told me that that was the plan. You know, they were definitely, the idea was to run through the light heavyweight and then eventually move up as he started filling out. He's lately been saying he doesn't want to do that, but I don't really buy it because this guy, Alexander Gustafsson, who's the only guy who's really ever given him a fight. He's going to have a rematch with him at some point. And after that, he's pretty much cleaned the division out. So it would make sense for him to go up. And, and I think he'd be just fine going up because he's nominally fighting 205 pounds, but he's dehydrating to make that weight. So he's probably going into the cage somewhere around 225 to 230, which is fine to fight at heavyweight. The, the current champion, Cain Velasquez, fights at about that weight. He's not huge. What you're seeing, actually, is that a lot of the better heavyweights are, are relatively smaller, and they win with speed. So Jones could physically do it. I mean, he could, probably, he could do it in his next fight. The only difference is he wouldn't cut weight, and that might actually make him a little bit faster if anything, not having to go through that whole process. So if he moved up to heavyweight, him versus Velasquez is probably the best fight they can put on because nobody has any idea who would win, win that. Velasquez is a guy you can describe as really similar to Jones. He's, does that, he's just kind of a freak. Does that matter and, to the sport, Tim, that he move up? Would that make UFC better, more appealing? You know, it might in terms of there being a couple of big fights for him there, but the heavyweight division is really thin because all the all the MMA heavyweights are playing football or, or doing something else. It's a really weak division. There's a, there's um, not much competition for him at light heavyweight, but there's more competition than there would be at heavyweight. So from a long-term perspective, like the, the better he can say a 205 probably, the better. Tim, I thought there was a great line in the Deadspin piece by Josh Tucker um, who wrote, Jones is the exact point where two valid arguments, how can you watch this shit and this is why I watched this shit meet. He is for worse and better MMA. You know, we were just talking about him being DQ'd for elbowing a guy in the head who maybe couldn't communicate with the referee. I mean, he seems like the person in sports most likely to cause someone a horrible, debilitating brain injury, whether you think that the 12 to 6 elbow should be outlawed or not. And then there's just his kind of personal behavior and his persona. You know, he calls a fan a fag on every form of social media imaginable and then claims, you know, surely incorrectly that his account was uh, hacked. He doesn't seem like he's necessarily the greatest guy in the world, although, you know, there are things that are really appealing about him. Can we get behind this guy? Should we root for him? You know, to me, I don't think he's any worse than any similarly positioned guy in another sport. He's just got a much worse PR team. So it's worth noting when he does stuff like that. But in the end, if you're holding that against him too much, you're essentially saying, you know, he should be branded better. That seems like kind of a weird criticism 
to make of a guy that his, his you know management people are, are sloppy and half-assed. Uh, he's a really compelling guy, and there's definitely a lot that's off-putting about him, as there are about all sorts of other compelling athletes. But he, he's definitely a guy worth getting behind because he's not only so gifted and so good at what he does, but he has this kind of, within the terms of the sport, this really refined sensibility. There's a, there's a fun point between the fourth and the fifth rounds against Teixeira where his coach told him, you know, this is an amazing artistic fight. It's wonderful to watch. You're doing great. And that's really is the mentality that Jones takes into his fights is that he doesn't just want to win, but he wants to do it in an aesthetically pleasing way, a beautiful way. It's something that you see maybe more in soccer and some basketball players. There's not this utilitarian instinct that I think you see more in, say, baseball or football. And that's really cool to see in a sport where the rules are so wide open that a guy can really express himself. He can create moves no one's ever seen. He can come up with different ways to show his skills. He can match his strength against his opponent's strength instead of uh, just playing to what he, he should do on paper. You know, he can out-wrestle a wrestler or, or roll around on the mat with a submission specialist. So, yeah, he's, he's a guy to watch. I think he's, he's one of the more fun guys because you're seeing a guy kind of define what can be done in a sport, whereas most other people you can see in big-time sports are, are basically pushing against how well kind of accepted techniques can be used. Isn't that the dichotomy of this sport, Tim, that it's brutal and violent and someday someone's going to get killed performing it at a high level, but at the same time it's grounded in these aesthetic sensibilities that you talk about, in these refined arts? It's what's hugely contradictory about it is, is you know, I can talk about all this, but when you when you turn the sport on, it's, you know, two guys in tights beating each other up, and there's a cage, and there's scantily clad ring girls, and all guys screaming at you, and, and horrible bro rock, and all that's pretty off-putting, and even at its best, it's, you know, guys are, are, are working within these uh, aesthetic parameters in terms of hitting other people in the head. You know, it's the same complexity that everyone's always seen in boxing, and, and there's no way, you know, there's no way to square those. There's no way to take the good without taking the bad. So it's just a question of how much you can put up with it and whether the guys at the high end are actually making it worth your while. If, if it's just a glorified tough man contest, there's nothing to it at all. And I think going forward, the kind of open question is whether they're going to be able to keep bringing those athletes into the sport. You know, in, in, in sort of the same way, the question for football is, you know, how many kids are going to be going into it, what's the talent pool going to look like in 20 years as we learn more about head trauma. Right. So I've never interviewed John Jones. I have interviewed both of his brothers, and I've asked them, what's the tougher sport? Hands down, they both said his sport is tougher than our sport. You know, they also said that each one of them was attracted to the sport that best matched their talents. But when I look at John Jones and the idea of celebrity, you know, other than Ronda Rousey, he's the closest to a household name. And he does show up on TMZ once in a while, but he hasn't really kind of broken through to areas that don't include UFC. And there's no reason for him not to. He's quite good in a press conference, and he's a good interview. And yes, Josh is documented, and let us not gloss over the fact that he is engaged in some homophobic slurs on Twitter. But there seems to be an argument that if a UFC guy is going to become a celebrity outside of UFC, maybe Jones is the guy. But I haven't seen that happening yet. Am I just missing it, or is there is he sort of a referendum on the uh, ceiling that a UFC celebrity can attain? No, I think he just happens to be pretty badly managed in some ways. 
when I, I, I was writing a story for the Wall Street Journal about him, and his manager wouldn't like connect me with him to do an interview. He just, he just pretty much refused, said, ah, oh, he's too busy, he gave me this runaround for weeks. I eventually ended up having to call one of his trainers who like pulled him out of a, a training session so that I could get on the phone with him to talk for this piece. And I've heard a lot of stories about that kind of runaround where his team actually makes it kind of difficult for people who want to do stories on him, which has an effect on the kind of celebrity you're talking about. And also, I think philosophically, the UFC doesn't want any of their fighters to become bigger than the brand. You know, the, the, the guy who's a really big celebrity out of UFC is Dana White. He, you know, he's the front and center face. Whenever you see the fighters doing the, the big stare down before a fight, his face is always right in the center of it. You know, he's like a modern Don King. He wants to be a bigger star than the athletes. And part of the reason for that is that you don't have to pay guys as much if they're not big celebrities. So they have this sort of interest in not making someone become so big that they could demand more money or wait out their contract and maybe, you know, just start their own fight promotion like we've seen boxers do. So with those two things working and the nature of the sport, I think it's going to be really tough for anybody to really get to that level where you think of a UFC fighter on the level of, you know, like a Bryce Harper or Kevin Durant or someone like that. But the right person comes along and they'll knock all that down just by force of personality. And, uh, you know, I think that'll happen eventually unless, you know, the UFC just blows itself up, which is, I suppose, possible. I don't want to restart the conversation here, but I think it's a little bit hypocritical of us to have spent all that time talking about Donald Sterling. The situations are very, very different, obviously, but just to kind of gloss over the fact that he was calling people fags and everything on uh, on Twitter. And a lot of this is branding, and it is you know, worth pointing out that if he was an NBA player, then you know the league would have come down on him incredibly hard. And it's just sort of accepted the fact that he's a UFC fighter, that this is the culture of that sport. And it's maybe like a minor, minor tempest, like not in MMA circles, but within that world, it just doesn't seem like anybody cares and any sanctions or anything will happen to the guy. No, no. It's, I mean, the you know Dana White, the president of the company, last week he, he called some woman fighter an it, or he agreed with Ronda Rousey calling her an it or something, and said she looked like Vanderlei Silva in a dress, who's a, a hideous male, male fighter. It is part of the culture, and it's another thing that puts a, a feeling on the sport, rightly so. Is, is, you know, who wants to follow that? You know, they benefit in that way from being pretty small-time, in that if somebody of uh, the level within a sport of John Jones was caught out apparently trolling some guy and telling him homosexuality is a sin online, that would be a pretty big deal. He'd be in sensitivity training and apologizing to anyone his words would have hurt and all the rest of it, but there's no real consequences for it. And I don't know if that sort of thing specifically leads anybody to not follow it, but I think in aggregate, yeah, there's, there's a kind of toxic culture around the whole thing, and you can't blame anybody who just doesn't want to have anything to do with that. All right, Tim. Thank you uh, very much. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Tim Marchman is an editor at Deadspin. It is now time for After Balls, and we had a fun time detailing all of the substances that baseball players like to slather on themselves. I think slather is just a great example of a verb that's apt to describe a particular act. I'm just feeling slather right now. Stefan, you've looked up some uh, perhaps more old-timey substances. I think licorice juice is my favorite of the old-timey substances that I have discovered. Jonah Carey did a piece for Grantland in which he discussed how 
pitchers would chew licorice, and then they would spew the sweet, viscous liquid on the ball. Common practice. Spew is another good verb. For daub this, is this another. Is a tender. Is a more tender <laughs> verb. Daub. All right, Mike. What is your licorice juice? Well, we all know that Dr. James Naismith was the father of basketball, but who was the father of the father of basketball? Well, that's whoever the hell James Naismith's father was. I'm going to guess Steve Naismith. But no, what I mean is who was the guy who encouraged James Naismith to invent basketball? A fascinating figure in his own right. I'm sure some people maybe have heard the name because Luther Halsey Gullick Jr., M.D., was an American physical education instructor who was in charge of the YMCA, the Springfield Y at that time, and told young James Naismith, hey, we need an indoor game. You have two weeks. Gullick did a lot of crazy things in his life. First of all, he was born in Hawaii. Not at all crazy. But that does indicate that he was the children of missionaries and he has this whole famous family. Gullick went on to study at Oberlin, where I'm sure he got a lot of sensitivity training, but he also came up with a lot of healthful and a lot of recreation ideas that are still used today. He designed the logo that eventually became the YMCA's logo. He lectured people at the Olympic Games. He, like I said, went to Springfield and pretty much gave the inspiration to start basketball. He started the Campfire Girls with his wife. He was the president of the American Physical Education Association of the Public School Physical Training Society. I love that. And he founded the Playground Association of America, which I would join if it were available. But now it's the National Recreation and Park Association, which to me is just some catch-all for Penn State linebackers and their majors. The most fascinating thing I found out about Gullick who, by the way, died at a quite a young age after he returned from France. He was inspecting troops over there. What I found out was that he wrote a book, a seminal leading manual on physical education. There's an actual link to the book, and this thing is called 10 Minutes Exercise for Busy Men, A Complete Course in Physical Education. And the cover of this book was quite arresting because it depicts a man clutching a mantle, engaged in some sort of physical activity, but you're not sure what it is. But this man is buck naked. He is naked. And as you read through this book, which was published in like 1910 or something, most of the demonstrations of how to do these activities are illustrated by buck naked men. Now, not the pulleys, right? The pulleys, I guess there was some sort of wire consideration. So those guys have clothes on. But all the stretching and all the jumping jacks, these are all just naked men from 1910. And then at the end of the book, uh, they have a lot of ads. This guy was big on dumbbells and he was big on weightlifting. He also enjoyed the uh, wands and the Indian clubs, which have gone the way of... I don't know, the American Playground Association. But near the end of the book, there is an ad for a bunch of equipment, including the quarter sleeve shirt. And the quarter sleeve shirt is something that we would call today a t-shirt. And the quarter sleeve shirt, uh, they were available in a couple different qualities. But the best worsted quarter sleeve shirt is available from this uh, whatever catalog is selling it for $2.75. I looked it up in the inflation calculator. To wear a t-shirt back in 1910 would cost the equivalent of $65. So maybe that's why these guys were all working out naked. It was cost prohibitive to actually wear a shirt. Just think about if this guy had uh, had more influence, what the NBA playoffs would look like. Mm-hmm. 
how does David Stern enforce a casual wear decree when that's the uniform? <laughs> when the uniform is no uniform at all. Stefan, what is your licorice juice? The Bad News Bears was released in 1976. If you were playing Little League Baseball at the time, it was your seminal film because you might have worn the same uniform style as the Bears, my league did, and because it was filled with slapstick and one-liners and swearing. But it was also a serious and prescient commentary from the Bears' social and political outcast lineup to the win-at-all-costs coaches. Roger Ebert called the Bad News Bears disturbing, harrowing, and an unblinking, scathing look at competition in American society. For Forty years on, it almost looks quaint. The horrors of youth sports make Vic Morrow's Roy Turner, the coach of the snooty Yankees, who beat Walter Matthau's alcoholic loser Morris Buttermaker's Bears in the championship game, look like, I don't know, Mike Krzyzewski or John Wooden. In the climactic scene, the Bears' cigarette-smoking, motorcycle-riding star Kelly Leak is thrown out at home plate trying for an inside-the-park Grand Slam. During the trophy presentation ceremony, one of the victorious Yankees attempts to make amends for the shabby treatment of the underdog team we just want to say you guys played a good game and we treated you pretty unfair all season we want to apologize we still don't think you're all that good a baseball team you got guts all of you i am thrilled now to be joined by the actor who uttered those words David Lazarus is an award-winning business columnist for the Los Angeles Times. He has also been my friend since we were young expat journalists in Athens, Greece, a long time ago. David, I've been wanting to do this to you for years. Welcome to Hang Up and Listen. At last, the recognition I've been seeking. All right, your line is crucial to the movie. It's even quoted in the Wikipedia entry on the Bad News Bears. Tell us about delivering it. Well, the synopsis of the film is clearly centering on me and, and my feelings as the Yankee spokesman. What can I say? I, I mean, it was a fun process. I was a little kid at the time, and I was uh, encouraged by a family member to uh, audition for this baseball movie they were making and actually did pretty well, came along, and I was in the running to be the, uh, the Tanner Boyle character, the bad boy on the Bears, until they decided to cast all the Bears much younger than me. And so I landed the coveted part of Yankee number one. Yankee number being, one. As you know, the spokesman for the Yankees, catcher for the Yankees, who heckles the boy from the plate. It is a pivotal role. It is a pivotal role. I think you were typecast as a member of the, of the snooty Yankees. Did that annoy you? Did you really want to be Tanner Boyle? I think what you're trying to get at really is because Walter Matthau was in Bad News Bears and in JFK, I'm only two degrees removed from Kevin Bacon, and you're not. <laughs> All right. The Bears naturally see through your insincere apology. Let's listen to Tanner Boyle and Lupus, Lupus, the, uh, the worst player on the team who's stuck in the outfield. Let's listen to them respond. Hey, Yankees, you can take your apology out of your trophy and shove it straight up your ass. Watching the movie for the nth time, David, I am struck by how poignant it is. Uh, the late Michael Ritchie also directed the messagey sports films Downhill Racer and Semi-Tough, and also how dark the Bad News Bears is and how well this movie holds up. Well, I mean, there are many similarities in the final act of Bad News Bears to the final act of Hamlet. I think I'm not the first person to point that out. But in all seriousness, Bad News Bears sort of set the, the template for a lot of the losers coming together 
becoming a real team movie. And, you know, that, that's all the way up through Sylvester Sloan and the Expendables these days. I mean, it is an established formula now for every movie that it gets made in that genre. And when they're pitched, they're called Bad News Bears type movies. It was a fun movie. And, and I got to say that, that being on the set as a little kid was fascinating because Michael Ritchie, a very cool, very tall director, as I remember him, Vic Morrow, and this is before the, the tragic Twilight Zone thing, was a really cool guy. I, I mean, he was somebody who was fun to hang around with. Walter Matthau, not so approachable. Uh, I had one scene with Matthau that didn't make it into the movie. I, like every other wow. great star in Hollywood, has a floor. story like that, yeah. uh, where we actually exchanged lines with each other. And he's, you know, one of those guys that you stood in awe of and didn't get too close to. And then uh, there was Tatum, who I, as it turns out, attended school with. And so I actually knew her, and, and we got to hang out a little bit. And, really? and I didn't it was know a fun this movie. Hollywood, Hollywood celebrity part. I was going to say, you didn't wind up with Tatum O'Neill in real life. How come? When you say wind up with, you mean like hanging out with and, and you know, watching movies? No, or... I, mean, I mean the mother of your children. Like that. Okay. No, not exactly, because, uh, you know, to be honest, uh, I'm kind of more the Paris Hilton, you know, Lindsay Lohan mm-hmm. kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, that, that's where my, my tastes lie. Actually, uh, the, the one who was uh, more pleasant to be around was Brandon Cruz, Courtship of Eddie's father, who is the, the, the Vic Morrow character's son on the Yankees. And so when we were all in the dugout together, he was you know, like the biggest star within reach because he's hanging out with the rest of us. Nice guy. Very pleasant to be around. For me, the, the greatest challenge is that I'm a lefty, and when they put me behind the plate as catcher so I could heckle the bright kid on the team, I forget, you know, it's not like... Engelberg, no, not Engelberg. Engelberg? No, Engelberg was the fat kid. No, Engelberg's the fat and then there's the smart one, yeah. and, and I heckle With the him Jewish the, last name, of course. Of course, because, you know, he's the smart guy. He's got the glasses on. Anyway, I'm wearing a righty's catcher mitt, and they had to throw me the ball and I had to stop it with a, a wrong mitt and anyone who has ever tried something like that knows how hazardous and frightening that is. Well, clearly you, clearly you are not enough of a method actor to pull it off. All right, Kelly Leak, played by Jackie Earl Haley, who went on to have a pretty successful acting career. He was a star in uh, the 1979 movie Breaking Away. Was he as cool in real life as on the field? Well, this was his cool phase. I, I mean, at, at that point in his life, he was a very cool kid, and then he grows up to become totally psychotic, and he's in The Watchmen, and, and mm-hmm. you know, now he plays the, the parts that Bruce Dern used to get. But back then, yeah, I mean, this is a guy who could pop on a motorcycle and do donuts on the field, and we'd all go, ooh, nice. Awesome. All right, how many, last question, David, how many times have you made your son watch your scene in The Bad News Bears? This is absolutely true, Stefan. I haven't been able to make him watch it once, and it's not for lack of trying. He just doesn't really care to see it, even though I've said, look, Daddy embarrasses himself horribly in this. You'll like it. He just doesn't want to go there, and I don't blame him. All right, Bad News Bears, really one of my favorite films, and it really was an important film in my childhood, and if I had only known that we would become friends later, I would have watched far more closely when I was 13 years old. David Lazarus is a business columnist for the Los Angeles Times and a dear friend friend of mine, David, thank you for coming on to hang up and listen to talk about this. And thank you for embarrassing me. Josh, what's your licorice juice? So I was looking at the top prospects in all of Canadian football, according to the CFL Scouting Bureau. The number one guy is offensive lineman Laurent Duvernay-Tardif, who plays for McGill University in Montreal. I don't need to tell you that, Stefan. Uh, in addition to learning that Duvernay-Tardif is a medical student who recently won top eight academic All-Canadian honors, I discovered that the team that he plays for, their nickname is the Redmen. Uh, we've talked in great detail about the Washington NFL team's offensive nickname, which we do not say in slate and writing or in podcast form. Um, but there's also 
a long tradition of teams with this other moniker, which I will say just for the purposes of making this afterball understandable and getting into the controversy about this uh, particular nickname and how it differs. Um, so UMass was uh, one of the first teams that changed its nickname from Redmen to Minutemen in the 1970s. A group of American Indians uh, wrote into the school's administration. They said it was defamatory, and the school pretty much changed it immediately. Uh, the next academic year came up with the Minutemen, which I think people associate very strongly with UMass seems like a good app decision. Um, more famously, more recently, St. John's changed its nickname, uh, Redman, in the 1990s. And I found a quote from Sister Margaret Fitzpatrick, who was a senior vice president of St. John's then, who said, you can't keep a nickname that increasingly more and more newspapers and radio stations won't allow because it's seen as offensive. Yes, so, you can. Mar- Yes, you can. So Margaret Fitzpatrick taking a strong uh, stand saying, we'll change the name because it's, you know, looks bad for the St. John's brand. Um, but the interesting thing about that is that the nickname came up in the 1920s because the men's team wore red uniforms. Supposedly, it didn't have anything to do with Native Americans in the origin of the name. Now, later, it came to uh, be seen as having that context. And this um, is the case at McGill as well, where they claim that the team name goes back to the color of the hockey team's uniforms. Back in the day, as we all know, newspaper headlines would shorten teams' names, save space. They had red uniforms. They were known as red men. But in the case of McGill, which you know has not changed the name, there have been a couple articles in recent years you know, making the analogy to the Washington NFL team. But there doesn't seem like there's a strong movement within the school to change it. They seem to be pushing this line, this argument that since the origins were the team's red color, then that means that they, you know, don't have any obligation to change it. Um, They say, you know, there were some Aboriginal Canadian logos on a team at some point, but that was kind of a coincidence. Like, yes, the Montreal Gazette called the team the McGill Indians in the 1950s, but that was referring to junior varsity teams. And then, you know, they stopped calling them that. Um, and now they don't really use the Aboriginal logos before. And yeah, that was also a coincidence. They, you know, they had that on the football team, but we don't really do that anymore. Um, this seems like a little bit more of an edge case than the Washington example. And, you know, different schools around the country and in Canada have treated this differently. Most of them have gotten rid of red men and have said, yeah, it's offensive to, uh, you know, Native Americans or to, you know, Canadians. And there's a lot of red hawks. There's a red storm for St. John's. But, you know, as we've seen with many other examples, language changes. The fact that it, you know, maybe started because of the uniforms shouldn't necessarily be in play now. Uh, It seems to have taken on an Indian, uh, you know, meaning. They did have the logos. Uh, People are offended and upset by it. Miguel, do the right thing, Miguel. Come on. Sister Margaret did it 20 years ago. Right, Stefan? Sister Margaret. Love Sister Margaret. That was a classic misdirection afterball, Josh. I thought you were going to talk about the CFL (laughs) prospects. There are only 15, apparently, Canadian prospects for the league's draft this year. The full list is on the CFL website. We'll save that for another week. No quarterbacks. 
No. That story, by the way, is also true of the Syracuse Orange Men, right? Because they were the orange because that was their color, and then they were called the Orange Men, and then they affixed an Indian symbol, and then they dropped the Indian symbol, and then they dropped the Orange Men, and now they're back to the orange. My favorite was the uh, team, uh, the school Carthage College, which in 2005 changed its name from Red Men with No Space to Red Men with a Space Between the Words and continues to use that name because the space. I think that's what Dan Snyder should do. Just to add a space. Just a capital letter. Capital letter. That's important. All right. We'd love your feedback on what we talked about today. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. We've got our links to the stories we discussed at slate.com slash hangup. Subscribe to Hangup and listen to iTunes at itunes.com slash slate podcasts. And become a fan of Hangup and listen on Facebook at facebook.com slash hangup and listen. That's a lot of URLs. I'm going to throw in subscribe to Slate Plus, uh, slate.com slash hangup plus. Because yeah. you are all there. I hope you have a very large hand in writing all this and down. no one will ever go to any of the websites. Oh, Stefan, don't say that. Well, that's too many URLs. Got to find a way to streamline. Our intern, it's Casey Butterly. Our producer is Mike Folo. The executive producer of Slate's podcast is Andy Bowers. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.